We're recording in high quality. I know, it's a Monday and you can't hear all of the machines outside here in the yard work right, capital. With our, <laughs> shall we start with our customary rant against machines and humidity before we get that out of the way? I know, oh my god, the humidity, like... Oh, the humidity. See, there was the joke. Yeah, oh. no, like, I can't breathe. It's so humid. I don't right, understand. Well, I'm not going to rub the... it in too hard. <laughs> well, okay, so I looked at the weather app, and here it was like 70 degrees and 100% humidity. It said 100% humidity. And then I looked at Detroit. How is that possible? That's... I don't know. And then you I don't looked live at in Detroit. an aquarium. I looked at Detroit and it said it was 62 degrees and 85% humidity. And I was like, oh, man, I long for the dry Midwest. Well, you'll be here shortly and you'll relive it for yourself. But yeah, it's uh, the mornings are very lovely and crisp here already. Yeah, boy, I miss that. I mean, people have claimed that, that it's like that here. And the first fall that I was dating Mike and I came out here to visit, we went apple picking. And it was very coupley. You know, it was weekend in New England. That's how they get kinda. you. Yeah. It they really is. They lure you in during tourist seasons, for sure. I know. Like Although, my week like, in Copenhagen, zero clouds the entire week I was there. And the people I met were like, yeah, enjoy it, man. <laughs> this place is overcast 90% of the time. But wow. I left Copenhagen saying, I want to move here. That's it. I'm riding my bike everywhere. You can swim in the river that runs through the city. They have these two enormous filters on either end of the river as it goes through town, and people just gather and swim in the river. It's startling. That is something. Um, I do not have a segue. Um, it's 9-11, and I, for one, am really glad that it's been overcast and cloudy because I have always had PTSD from that day that seems to be triggered by the weather. When it's the same weather that it was that day, you know, perfectly blue skies, sunny gorgeous just a little touch of coldness i kind of shut down for a while and i guess that's the nice thing about it being rainy and humid here that is that that's not happening to me this year that's what you do find the joy in 100 (laughs) percent humidity exactly so i have been noticing for the past couple of years that people have either attached really fiercely to that experience almost as if that's sort of like what the country is about on this day or they just aren't talking about it anymore we shouldn't talk about it and i don't think that that's true i think it's something that happened to a lot of us that we still carry with us and That is why I'm really glad that we talked to Alex Walker last week about it, about sort of the differences in who we were then and who we are now. 22 years ago, I'm not sure that I would have predicted that we would have still been here as a species. You were thinking that? I didn't really know what to think, you know? For what it's worth, I'm going to break in here because you're breaking up horribly and your picture's gone. And I don't know if it's your Wi-Fi or mine. I know you're in a different place than usual. Well, I can Um, see you just fine. Right. But the bottom line is I can't hear what you're saying, so I can't respond to it. Oh. That has been effortless ever since. Okay. Right now, when you said, (laughs) Well, and I can believe that because sometimes when I was not living here, when I was talking to Mike, Mike would be walking around the house with the phone and 
suddenly he would start talking like this. And it wasn't him making a robot voice. It was just something about the phone and connection making him sound this. It was very like, <laughs> Domo Origato, Mr. Roboto, Domo Domo. <laughs> How is the weather there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, let's soldier through as best we can. I know there's work to be done. Yeah. So I was reading a friend of mine. He wrote a substack today about 9-11. He remembers it very viscerally just because he has since paired up with a 9-11 widow. Oh, wow. Yeah, he tells the story of his two daughters whom he has adopted. The daughters at the time were six and three when 9-11 happened and their father was killed. And six years later, uh, he started dating their mother and now they're a family and the kids are adults. But he has this heartbreaking picture of these two little girls sitting on a memorial bench with his name and date of birth and date of death, September 11, 2001. Um, And so he talks a lot about there's this chasm now between the people who experienced 9-11 but didn't lose anybody and the people who actually lost family members, lost friends. I mean, I'm not in that group. Uh, I mean, a, a classmate of mine died The brother of another high school classmate of mine died. The girlfriend of my former boss died. You know, there's these kind of... Yeah, like all these connections. Yeah, I mean, I knew people who died too, but they weren't like friend friends. Right, but actually there are more people that you and I know who would very likely have died if they had gone to work that day. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I had a number of... Roosevelt the opera singer? Yes. There were a lot of people who weren't there that day. And... I completely get that because I felt like about five years out from it, there was a huge gap between the people who lived in New York City Metro and DC Metro and everyone else. Because we were in those two areas still dealing with the physical fallout and how close we had been to it and the fact that it had really impacted everything about those areas, whereas everybody else, you know, they could remember where they were when they heard about it, but it just wasn't physical for them the way it was for us. And I'm imagining that now that gap is less as people have come into those cities and left those cities and gone other places. But so now the gap really is between the people who lost people and the people who didn't lose people. But people like us also who just spent the many months in the city afterward, I mean, when I did finally go back to work, they used to bus us out to another office out on Route 3, and we could look back at the skyline and watch it smolder still. I mean, this is November. Yeah. And then we got back to my office, which uh, was right there, you know, 10 blocks north of Ground Zero. And the offloading point is essentially what they were doing as they were clearing debris. They would load the trucks up bring them up the West Side Highway right to where my office was. And that's where the offload point was to the scows that brought the um, scrap metal and everything else out to the landfill in uh, Staten Island. So I would spend all day listening to debris being offloaded, you know, scraped and dumped into a scow right below my office. And that's what sticks with me. The fact that it just, it was a months long process a to understand what had happened but b to watch us slowly 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 build back to some semblance of normal again which still hasn't happened i don't um my friend jamie published a memoir 
you and I spend a lot of time talking about memoirs, I think, both recording and not recording. Anyway, Jamie published a memoir last year, the year before, maybe. Um, it was called Bully Market, and it was about her time being a managing director at Goldman Sachs and like one of the only women and, you know, just what a shit show that place is. That's a story. That's oh, a total story. Oh, my God. It's a real story. Like, I would highly recommend if you want to read a really traumatizing memoir read her book but um there's a part in it when you know, you know i live for traumatizing memoirs yeah you know she started working there right out of college in i think like 98 so she was working there and living in new jersey when 9-11 happened and there's this whole section of the memoir it's like you know, all the excitement and the gaslighting and all this crazy stuff of her early days at Goldman. And then like, you know, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then suddenly 9-11 happens. And there really is like a hole in the memoir where you can feel her just like free falling emotionally. And she's so traumatized by it for so many months. And it's really hard for her to go back into the city and all this kind of stuff. And just reading it, I was like, yeah, I bet people who didn't live in New York City Metro are thinking, wow, this must have been exaggerated. But when I was reading it, I was just like, yeah, I completely get this. She was writing about it so viscerally that I just cried through reading that whole section because it was so realistic. See, and that's what I think the traumatic memoir serves in our yeah. lives right now, because we need to share our collective grief over whatever we're going through, because everyone's right. grieving something. Yeah. That's why I, I mentioned this in the Friday Flames, this memoir I just I, I read in one sitting, which is Rob Delaney's memoir, A Heart That Works, about when his third son was diagnosed with a colossal brain tumor and eventually died. Wow. And since he's a comedian, he just comes at you very blunt, very cathartically right. raw about, you know, he wants to look at strangers and say, don't ask me how I am, okay? My two-year-old was just carted away in a rubber bag by strangers and burned. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? He just yeah. has that, I want you to know and understand what I went through. And I'm so angry because I feel so isolated in my grief. It's just me and my wife. Because when you're in that space, all you can think about is how you're processing your own trauma, irrespective of whatever other traumas people are going through. Right. And I really think anybody who's grieving anything and is going through that stage of grief, that anger, needs to read that book just because you will empathize with how frustrated you feel, with how impotent you feel, and how resentful you feel that this happened to you and somebody else has all their children healthy and intact. And yeah. you just get overwhelmed by this comparison and, and, and anger that overtakes your overall mood all the time. He says he got he got really into horror films. I mean, when things go terrible, he would exult in them just because the anguish they were going through mirrored his own. Right. So I hear you on that. I think they're going to see a lot of memoirs coming out of here because anybody who wants to relive something like that and wants to share what their experience was and not necessarily how they even got out of it, more about how they just process and how they made it a part of their new normal because... That's also the common thing, right? You know, you don't really get over grief. You just kind of take it on and make it part of your your new daily daily. So I recommend that. I haven't gone through anything close to what he's been through, but he says it's made him a better father, a better partner, because he's got four boys. 
it's a staggering story. It's a brief one, but it definitely it serves a particular purpose, I think, if you are in that particular angry mood. Um by the way, now I'm getting I'm getting okay, uh, yeah, well, the, it's uh, like somebody weed whacking or doing some shit like literally right under the window. I don't Man, you weren't kidding. <laughs> oh my god. It's just the encroaching insane. weed whackers. It's completely fucking nuts. Well, okay, I'm going to mention one more memoir before we close, shut this down. I've run a memoir book club for my college alumni association. And I mean, it's not official, but whatever. And today we're reading. <laughs> it's on the DL. It's on the DL. <laughs> today we're reading. Memoirs. Yeah, today we're reading Ellis Avery's really, really beautiful memoir of what it was like living in New York City during 9-11. It's called right, the, you mentioned that in the yeah, flames. Yeah, it's the called smoke week, The yeah. Smoke Week. And I mean, she was a writer and a novelist, and she just kept a diary during her whole adult life. And so like a year after the dust had settled, literally, she just sort of put together this memoir from her diary of those 10 days from September 11th through September 21st, and published it as a memoir. And it's just beautiful it's quiet and it's sweet and it's anguished and it's confused and it's clear and it's you know it's everything so i think if there's anybody who's thinking i just want to read something that makes me feel really human the smoke week by ellis avery and um, she wrote another memoir later about her experience with cancer that she just couldn't get on top of and she did end up dying about six years ago of cancer um, do you think the cancer she got was from all that i smoke? do not know i don't know it might have been did she live nearby yeah she and her um girlfriend at the time and then wife lived right by the cube that turned well, you're not, oh, 140 Broadway. I worked in that building. Well, they didn't live in that building, but they lived kind but of. Still, though, that is right on like, top of right Ground by Zero. Astor Place. Holy crap. Yeah. Well, right by Astor Place, right? The cube by NYU. Oh. Yeah, no, not okay. down there. They, Here they I lived am. on Astor I hate Place. when I confuse my rotating cubes. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I chose to move here, frankly, because Ann Arbor also has a rotating cube, but I really <laughs> don't feel at home unless. I can go visit a rotating rotating cube. cube. Yeah, that's still <laughs> close. So that's far. That's yeah. closer to Ground Zero than we were. Yeah. So I, I guess it it would make sense that a topic today would discuss memoirs and processing grief and processing anger and figuring out what to do with them because they really don't go away. They just kind of right, exactly. And there isn't anything to be done about it. I think that was part of what was so horrifying about the actual day and like maybe the first 10 to 15 years afterwards i just always sort of felt like there was something to be done about it on 9 11 and now it's like well there wasn't anything to be done about it do you remember when i had that weird doctor that only took cash up in um inwood <laughs> I called him Dr. Yoda. There were a lot of weird people who only took cash up and in wood. I got that um, strep throat and like could not make it downtown to see my regular doctor. And my friend Jeannie told me that there was a guy who only took cash and Medicaid who was like two blocks from my house. And I practically crawled there because I felt so bad. And he seems legit. <laughs> right. And he came out and saw me and he 
I don't know. He was somewhere between 80 and 150 years old. And I nicknamed him Dr. Yoda because he looked like if you had taken Yoda and had stretched him, he was like six feet tall. But he just had this kind of elderly Yoda look and he was very wise. And I came in and I had this sore throat and he just And he said, sore your throat is. (laughs) Well, what he said was, that's a lot of pus. (laughs) <laughs> and then he like prescribed me prednisone and old school penicillin and I got better, right? Well, so one time I was in there for some medical concern that I was going to pay cash to have solved with $2 worth of old timey medicine. And it happened to be Pearl Harbor Day. And he started telling me where he had been on Pearl Harbor Day and what oh, he remembered God. about it. And so then, you know, later I was trying to do the math and figure out exactly how old he was. He was well past retirement age, let's just say that. But I think, you know, it was very interesting to hear his perspective. He had been, I think, a teenager at the time and had been just like out on the street, you know, doing teenage boy things. And where where was he? He was in New York City. I think he was probably in the same neighborhood, probably in Inwood. And, you know, like nobody knew what to think. What did you think? Right. You didn't know. And they thought they were going to be attacked next in New York City. And like, you know, they didn't have any way of putting it into perspective at all at the time. And that was part of what we talked about was that he had no idea what was going on. Live images. Right. And he still. No up to the date hot take commentary. Yeah. And what he said was, I still don't really know what to think about it. And I think that that's. I still don't really know what to think about 9-11. You know, maybe when. I'm 85 or 90 and working well past my prime, although he was providing a valued service to the cash paying people with illnesses in that neighborhood, right? Like, yeah, he probably wasn't sketchy. He just knew how shitty no, our healthcare system is. He wasn't is. sketchy at all. He had <laughs> an office space that he was probably still paying the same amount of money that he had been paying for when he started in it in like 1965 or something, right? And you would just come in and you'd put your name on the list and you'd wait there and he would see people in the order that they came in. And if you didn't have Medicaid, you would pay him $35 cash. I might have tried to write a check one time and they were like, no, we can't take a check. We'll just take cash. But they're off the grid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then he would just I don't even know if he had a nurse. He had some lady working at the desk who would call you honey. That's also why you were so at home in Detroit, because you are the queen of, I know a guy who knows a guy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I really am the queen of, I know a guy. How are you adjusting to life where you have to go through normal channels to get things done? Um, Not so well so far. Like, I don't know any guys yet. (laughs) Well, that's the plan, right? Those three years are going to be spent finding a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who will take cash to fix stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.